regenerative medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to uh, welcome to this podcast Dr. George Christ from Wake Forest University. Dr. Christ is a professor of regenerative medicine and, and has appointments in the departments of urology, physicology, and pharmacology, biomedical engineering, molecular medicine. In addition, he has an important position in the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine where he's the head of the cell tissue and organ physiology of activities. Dr. Chris, welcome to uh, Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here uh, speaking with you today. I know you have a, a rather uh, diverse and uh, very significant uh, program. Uh, can you b begin this discussion by giving us an overview of, of your interests and focus areas? Absolutely. Happy to do so. Uh, I think it would be wise first to uh, provide some information on my background so you can see how it is um, that I approach regenerative medicine and where the real mix is at the W firm or the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And the real interest for me in being there is I was actually trained at Wake Forest uh, where I got my Ph.D. in physiology and pharmacology um, and then went back to New York and spent 17 years at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine where I went from uh, postdoc to instructor through the ranks to professor. And during my time there, um, physiology uh, and what the NIH would fund kind of changed quite dramatically and went from a more descriptive to a more molecular sort of understanding. So as we picked up those molecular aspects, we applied them to physiology. People have referred to that as physiomics and, and lots of other terms, but the bottom line is you're trying to understand how normal tissues function and what the molecular signature and phenotype of cells are in normal tissue, and then trying to understand how the aging and various disease processes like diabetes and cardiovascular disease affect organ and tissue function. And really our goal has been to, in smooth muscle in particular, to try and profile the tissue so that we can differentiate where we start out with what's normal and then sort of watch the needle as it moves across the whole spectrum. And then somewhere along the line, before we bury the needle, identify molecular targets that we know are important uh, modulators of cell, tissue, and organ function, and use those on either a diagnostic or therapeutic basis to restore tissue function in the absence uh, sometimes even of curing the disease, but to provide symptomatic relief for lots of smooth muscle disorders, whether you're talking about hypertension, asthma, irritable bowel disease, lots of low urinary tract diseases, um, cardiovascular diseases, reproductive diseases. So there's a whole variety of, of diseases um, that are impacted by alterations in smooth muscle function. But it's clear that with an aging population, as people live longer and diseases uh, manifest for longer periods of time, you get to a point where there's very little viable tissue left, and there's not much you can do therapeutically, even if you know what the problem is. So in the absence of viable tissue, uh, that's where I think the, the real interest for regenerative medicine for myself came in, um, because at that point, since there's nothing else that we can do, um, you really have to build new functional tissue. Um, and understanding normal tissue physiology and looking at the cascade, the dysfunction, you learn quite a lot about the process. Um, and it's really just fascinated me to now start in the other direction from nothing and try and create tissues de novo, whether that's in vivo or in vitro. And that's really was the entree uh, to my original conversations with Tony Atala, who I'd known through my interactions in the urology circles for some time. He came back to my alma mater. Uh, we started talking, and I jumped in with both feet because I thought that tissue engineering regenerative medicine was a fascinating discipline. Um, there's very few at present physiologists that are really focused on this particular area uh, because I think that the antecedents to getting to the point where you evaluate tissue, there were so many hurdles and stumbling blocks that had to be overcome to get to the point where you could call things tissue that there really hasn't been much need for it. But I think most physiologists will recognize in the not-too-distant future that this is a pretty fascinating 
area of research, and I think you will also need people um, with that kind of background in regenerative medicine to sort of provide a quality control and uh, another layer of thinking about how we actually make organs and tissues that function the way that they're supposed to in vivo. So that's really been my take on, uh, on getting into tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. Now, having said that, there's many, many different approaches to this, um, from simply providing uh, intelligent scaffolds and biomaterials that can uh, provide the healing process, maybe perhaps in of their own, uh, cellular therapies, where you can just inject cells that can home to tissues and organs and, and replace damaged tissues, um, to doing the process entirely in vitro, perhaps, and then placing an organ in a person. And I think that all of these approaches have champions uh, like Steve Badalak and David Williams, Tony Atala, who, uh, you know, has the sort of prime the pump um, philosophy, um, where you just provide organs and, and uh, you provide cells on scaffolds and reimplant those and let the body, which is the best bioreactor, do the rest. And, and certainly in healthy people, that is a, a really winning strategy in their clinical trial that he and Shai and James actually uh, published in The Lancet with Alan Reddick uh, last year clearly provides proof of concept. Um, you know, Steve Badalak and some guys are uh, looking for in vivo regeneration using blastomeres, and you've got Johnny Heward who's doing um, some fascinating cell therapy work for muscle disorders. Uh, there's lots of people out there that are doing quote-unquote regenerative medicine for sort of less invasive disorders. And I recently heard uh, David Williams at a, at a seminar at Wake Forest actually say maybe we don't even need materials. So clearly there's divergent opinions about the field, and uh, it's fascinating to be part of that. Um, my philosophy on this is that um, the, as we expand the number of indications for regenerative medicine and the number of people to whom these technologies would apply, that people will have a very, very different landscape with respect to regenerative capacity. So if you look at it from that perspective, the more we can do on the front end with respect to how much we can build an organ tissue cell uh, that has the appropriate physiology and phenotype in vitro, the less we will tax the regenerative capacity of the individual in vivo. So uh, if you think about people that are 60, 80, 90 years old who might need organs and tissues replaced just as even as a quality of life, if not because it's a life-threatening uh, problem, in those cases where people are going to have perhaps poor, poor circulation, compromised innervation uh, and neuronal function and, and clearly compromised regenerative capacity relative to, say, a teenager or someone in their early 30s or 40s, in those circumstances, I think it would behoove us to have technologies that we can bring to bear where we can provide organs and tissues and cells that are actually more mature and uh, will integrate more quickly and provide function right from the outset. So I think there's one instance where uh, the physiologist can have a real role in trying to guide the cellular um, and tissue development process in, in vitro and make sure that those tissues have all the properties of normal tissues. Um, at Wake Forest, the approach that we're taking um, is the use of bioreactors, which are basically instruments or devices that we use in a laboratory um, that we can use to uh, put cells on scaffolds or whatever biomaterials there are, have control of the extracellular environment as well as the intracellular environment, and try and recapitulate in a device in a laboratory as many of the in vivo aspects um, as we can. That's not to say we can match the chemistry and hormonal milieu of the in vivo environment, that's simply not possible right now. But there's been lots of work with cultured cells, so people have identified who the major players are, and the mechanical forces on cells and tissues in most organs of the body are very well described, and, and those that are more subtle can be learned um, by doing experiments in vitro. And so one of the focuses uh, of our group 
in our institute is to use these devices to mature tissues. Um, we currently have bioreactors uh, for blood vessels, for liver, uh, cardiac valve, um, and skeletal muscle um, right off the bat that we're working on fairly actively where we're trying to use basic physiological principles, combine them with regenerative medicine ideas in the context of tissue engineering and see if we can develop uh, cells, tissues, and organs that have many of the physiologic properties that you'd expect in vivo. So as, as the physiology core function of the uh, Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, what we do is we look at the, the cell, the tissue, and then uh, the more mature tissue as it goes through its process, both before we implant it and after we retrieve it, to see if, how we can describe the process. So on the physiology side, for instance, the, the the biochemistry, the physiology, pharmacology of blood vessels, skeletal muscle, cardiac tissue, these are all very well-described phenomena. And so we know to a very, very high degree of precision what the normal characteristics of these tissues should be, and we also have a fairly good idea of what the pathophysiologic mechanisms are for age and disease-related changes. Those are not always things that we can fix because you're working in a diseased environment and there's many other organs that impact on the function of an individual organ, but at least we understand those properties fairly well. What we'd like to be able to do is leverage that information to create tissues that will function well in that environment and then be able to match the maturation process as you move along to see how closely we can approximate that. Now a lot of this is sort of future fantasy because we haven't actually done that. We can make blood vessels that look like blood vessels in vitro that have some of the properties of normal blood vessels but don't necessarily respond to all the things they need to respond to in vivo. Again, as we've just sort of begun this process, we don't know how far along we can get, but we've made so much progress in the last 18 months to two years that I really am very encouraged that um, at some point we will be able to make fairly uh, mature and physiologically functioning organs and tissues in the laboratory, um, but that requires expertise that then goes outside of physiology. So the physiology is sort of our, our guide stick and what I like to call is quality control. So if we're going to make heart tissue, we're going to make skeletal muscle, we're going to make blood vessels, just like uh, you have the inspectors that a number in your pants pocket says, yeah, I checked this and these pants are okay. We need to do that same sort of thing um, for engineered tissues, especially if you envision a time where you have a bioreactor device that's so sophisticated that you basically put a scaffold in there, you inject whatever cells chemicals, hormones you would want to into that mix, you close this device, and that's it. This organ, cell, tissue, whatever it is that you're interested in making, then matures itself in there, much the way you think about uh, cooking a turkey in the oven, and then the critical thing will be identifying the equivalent of the needle in the turkey, which when the inside of the turkey gets to 400 degrees, pops out and says, okay, this is ready. So there's a whole suite of techniques that even once we get past all the barriers, required for creation of normal tissue in an in vitro environment, we're still going to need uh, to do in a sterile and FDA compliant way to be able to create these tissues. And then you can imagine these would be closed compartments. You would disconnect this from its parent device. It would have some RF signal on it. You would scan it, uh, put it in another device which would monitor pH, temperature, whatever it is you're interested in, ship it to the surgeon in the OR across the country or, or across the town. Um, he would then scan it back in to make sure it's a match for the patient, uh, look a card readout of all things to make sure that none of the organ functions or tissue functions changed uh, you know, as it transited across the country or across the world or across town, and then use that um, to implant in a patient. So that's on the far-reaching fantastic side of this where I think you know, we could be uh, a few decades from now. Um, but on the front end of that, 
we have all these other issues of actually showing that that principle applies, and, and that's really what we're trying to make progress on uh, in the laboratory at this point. Yeah, you've uh, you've uh, given a wonderful overview and shared a very futuristic vision of where this technology can take us, but I'd just like to reinforce what you said at the end there, and that is that I know from the work I've followed of you and your colleagues that you're really truly building some firm building blocks in terms of being able to ultimately get to this goal that you've described. So uh, you are uh, moving along this pathway and uh, you're to be congrat congratulated for all the things you've done to this point. The, uh, I might just mention to our listeners that uh, uh, Dr. Christ has uh, mentioned a number of his collaborators and colleagues who have been on regenerative medicine the day before. Uh, Dr. Atala, Dr. Badalak, and Dr. Williams have all uh, recorded uh, previous uh, podcasts, so you might refer back to those in, um, in uh, putting this whole picture together. Actually, in terms of the vision that you just shared with us, I know that uh, your colleague, Dr. Atala, and uh, with the help of you and many of your other colleagues, has actually made a first step in this regard with the, uh, the uh, tissue-engineered uh, bladder that uh, has bladders that have been successfully implanted. Uh, just very briefly, can you remind our listeners about that particular endeavor? Yes, in fact, that was really the proof of concept and is a very encouraging uh, milestone along the development. Um, the uh, tissue engineer bladder was actually, in my mind, it was a, a brilliant first organ to, to work with. Uh, the patients that require this uh, transplant have spinal cord injuries, and so when you lose input from the spinal cord to the bladder, it basically just contracts down and fibrosis over time. It becomes a very painful disorder, and the young kids that have this uh, disorder are, are required to catheterize themselves many times a day because the bladder won't empty normally, so they're subject to urinary tract infections. It's very painful, and they're having to empty their bladder many, many times a day because it's a very small volume, high-pressure, painful bladder. So the concept, there, and there really are no alternative treatments for this sort of thing for these people. So it was a great indication from the perspective of not having an alternative treatment. In addition, the bladder is a very, very thin-walled um, organ. And because of the presence of the omentum um, inside the, the body, you can actually uh, engineer um, the organ in vitro, you can then take this polymer, which is biodegradable, based on all the basic principles that have been advanced by our group and many others. You can coat the inside with uh, the, the urethylene, which is the epithelial lining to protect the, the bladder from the urine, and then the outside with the muscular layer, which is required um, for the bladder to contract and maintain tone. And you can insert that then in the body and wrap it with the vasculature. And the beauty of that is, you know, still to this day, the biggest limitation to tissue engineering is being able to supply nutrients and take out toxic substances. So this was actually a really, really clever way to do this because the vascular tissue was shown in animal models to very, very quickly integrate with the implanted bladder. And so over a very short period of time, in the absence of any obvious or uh, functional necrosis, this bladder was able to integrate, um, supply its own nutrients, mature. And if you looked at the preclinical uh, experiments that they did on the animal models over a very extended period of time, more than a decade, you could see that it very, it formed actually a, some, a bladder that was basically indistinguishable from one that you wouldn't normally see. So the bladder that replaced it, the bioengineered bladder that replaced the normal bladder looked incredibly normal. So that actually showed proof of concept um, for this overall approach and it showed that when you took these cells and you put them in a bioreactor, albeit a very primitive bioreactor, and cultured them in that environment and then implanted it, this would work. 
the kinds of bioreactors that we're talking about developing now to distinguish from that would be bioreactors uh, that would have a much more active role rather than as just providing sort of an incubator, a pre-incubation before you put it back in the body of a relatively healthy person who could then do all the rest of the work. So the kinds of things that we're talking about doing now are providing uh, forces, just to give you an example, in the bladder, perhaps you'd want a device that would actually expand and contract the bladder on a regular basis so that you could actually exercise the bladder in vitro prior to implantation. Something like that could be very important, you might imagine, in a 70, 80, 90-year-old person who's diabetic and has poor circulation and compromised innervation, perhaps um, it would be much more task taxing for them to integrate this bladder with the existing vasculature, and, and if we can do more on the front end of something like that for these, to expand the number of people that can sort of come in to this technology um, by developing better ways to mature tissues in vitro, that that would be the, uh, another big advance along the line. But clearly that was, a, uh, as you've pointed out, a landmark case because it showed proof of concept for the overall approach. Very good. Is you know, as I look at regenerative medicine, you can think about it in several areas. I mean, one, of course, is prevention. Uh, secondly, is early diagnosis. And then, of course, there are these regenerative techniques that we're exploring some examples here today. Uh, if I go back to your description of your work in physiology, uh, it seems to me that perhaps there's markers or indicators uh, from your physiological studies that uh, could be early indicators of problems that might be more indicative or early predictors than what we have today? Yeah, and in fact, um, this is very much in line with uh, what Elias Zerhouni and the whole uh, NIH philosophy is because of the graying of America. If you look at what the expenses on healthcare, it's going to be actually overwhelming. And so the NIH is very, very focused right now, as well as should be, on identifying this suite of markers for altered cellular tissue function, et cetera. Now, again, that's something that's really, really great in theory, and there are some of those that exist for different types of disease, but that's still sort of uh, far out there because you're not studying something in, in a particular point in time. You're trying to use it to predict something down the road. So uh, it, it becomes a little bit, uh, it, it's a very difficult thing, but something that I think can be done. Uh, you need to do that in longitudinal ways. So you have to study things over time, which yeah, is very... Trend analysis. Exactly, yeah, and that's very easy to do in animal models. It's a lot harder to do it in people because of follow-up and maybe the invasiveness of the procedures. So I completely agree with you. I think that um, if, if you, and again, this is one of the reasons why I was so drawn to this, if you can understand the process going from normal tissue physiology to disease, then not only can you develop biomarkers for that process, but you'll also know where the therapeutic points and the diagnostic points of no return, so to speak, would be. I mean, one of the ways that you can think about regenerative medicine and one of the ways that I think about it is not necessarily as a life, an indefinite life extension tool, but as a quality of life extension tool. So um, if anyone who's had a, a grandparent or of some kind in a nursing home where you've known these people for years and then you go into the nursing home and because, um, you know, they're wearing diapers, um, they haven't been exercising properly, and, and their whole life is affected, let's say, because of their bladder dysfunction or something. You could imagine if at an early time point you were able to intervene and supply these people with a new bladder or with a little bit of extra skeletal muscle for balance or whatever so that they could maintain a more active lifestyle for a longer period of time, perhaps they never end up in the nursing home. And I always use the, the sort of silly analogy is wouldn't it be nice if at 100 years old you're going out for a five-mile run and you get hit by a bus? It would be a much better way to go than sitting in a nursing home on medication for 20 years, um, you know, looking at a, a 
big clock on the wall that tells you what time of day it is. In fact, I guess I would suggest to you that in terms of some of the progress that's ma been made in cell-based therapies, you may not need to, in all cases, uh, give the patient a new bladder, but you may be able to rejuvenate it or repair it uh, with cellular therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, in fact, in many ways, you're probably going to have to have more information to intervene at the cellular level in, in vivo than you will to just replace uh, an organ that's, that, that's dysfunctional. So it may be that, in fact, the intermediate step is replacement. However, if you think about it, and I sometimes do, you know, when I grew up, I, I had, we had a big redwood deck in the back of our yard. Every summer, my dad and I would go out there and replace all the bad boards with new boards. It was easy to see what the bad boards were. Now, sure, we could have gone in there and put in putty and plastic and those sorts of things and given them another year, but a lot of times it's just easier to rip out the board and replace it. Now, in the 17 years I lived in that house, by the time we came to the end of it, I doubt there was a single board in that deck that was still the same as when they built the house, and yet the deck still served the same function. So I think that one of the ways, you know, one of the real utilities of regenerative medicine is in, in that way. We stay the same, but we replace our tissues and organs as necessary. I mean, if you think about your car, you change the oil every 3,000 miles, you change the spark plugs, the tires, you rotate them. You do all these things for your car, and we're not in a position and haven't been until relatively recently to even think about the possibility of doing that for ourselves. In fact, the body's repairing itself all the time. And, uh, That's you know, the. The fact of the matter is what you and your colleagues are trying to do is to enhance that or focus that for special needs. That's exactly right. And so, and, and, and this is a theme that you hear many times from many different institutes throughout the world is, yeah, somewhere along the line, our ability to heal ourselves is diminished to such a point that we can no longer keep up. So clearly ulti the ultimate goal would be if you knew what that process was and you could perpetuate that for a long period of time. I suspect that there's some genomic um, constraints on that process within cells and in the cellular senescence process that will prevent, I would say at least in our lifetime, us from overcoming some of those barriers. But for sure, we can use relatively simple things like physiology, um, you know, cell scaffold biomaterial interactions, nanotechnology, those sorts of things. And what we do now about developmental biology in the interim while we understand this whole process um, to provide, I think, symptomatic relief and quality of life and, and I think in many cases uh, cure life-threatening diseases through the application of this. But I agree with you, the overall goal, that, that would really be the fountain of youth. If you knew how to maintain that regenerative process of every cell, tissue, and organ, that would be the ultimate answer. So, uh, Dr. Chris, this is very exciting. Uh, uh, what, do you, uh, what do you see for the immediate future? That's a great question. Actually, I'm very optimistic about the future. I, I think the most important um, component of all this will not be necessarily what any one of us or any one institute can do individually, although I think it's, it's clearly important to have areas of concentration and focus. But I think what's held back the, the field of regenerative medicine tissue engineering, and I don't mean held back in a bad way, but what's prevented the huge quantum leaps that are required is the fact that um, to reconstruct an organ or, or prevent tissue decay, to really activate the regenerative process requires the insight and expertise of so many different people across so many different disciplines that it's not possible, I think, within any one institute or any one individual's lifetime to achieve the level, uh, level of knowledge and expertise you need to solve these problems. But as people apply the principles of nanotechnology, molecular genetics, cell biology, developmental biology, physiology, pharmacology, biomaterials, uh, materials chemistry, 
and all these varied disciplines that are sort of under the rubric uh, now almost of regenerative medicine or tissue engineering as we really work together to share our successes and our failures uh, in a team-based way, I think we can, um, I think really the sky's the limit and that, you know, for each organ and tissue, the problems will be slightly different. You won't be able to put any one of those all underneath one roof. But if we just uh, increase what our definition of the roof and, and work together without worrying about necessarily who gets the credit all the time, I think then we can tackle just about everything. Well, you've, uh, you know, reinforced a, a theme that we've heard from almost every uh, contributor to this podcast, and that is that uh, these studies truly need to be multidisciplinary and in many cases, as you suggested, not even within one institution but across institutions as well. Uh, we've, we've covered a, a lot of a very fascinating uh, area here today, and we've covered it in a very broad manner as dictated by the time we have available. Uh, we will have on the Regenerative Medicine Today uh, podcast site the uh, links to Dr. Chris's uh, activities and to also to the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine uh, so that listeners who are interested can uh, further explore uh, these exciting developments. Uh, I would like to uh, remind our listeners that you can uh, su- pass on suggestions about topics uh, through our mail link, which is mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd also remind you that we're not physicians and we're not in a position to diagnose specific problems. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast. And again, thank Dr. Chris for joining us today. My pleasure, John.